Okay, so thank you for coming. So I guess we're ready to start. And uh, as is customary and has become the, the, the custom in our communities, right, we begin with an acknowledgement of the land. We say miigwech to the um, Mississauga Anishinaabeg of the area, Curve Lake, Hiawatha, and Alderville. And uh, we say thank you for their looking after this land for thousands and th thousands of years so that we can be here today and do our things. Okay, so thank you, Alice. So I want you to, to welcome you to the uh, Voice of a Nation uh, panel with, uh, with artists, right? And we're going to at least hear artists' uh, ideas tonight about... Uh, uh, about how we begin to tackle, uh, I guess, what my academic colleagues call the, the Canada Project, right? And we're going to discuss uh, about the role of artists and, and art in the role of, of challenge in the national narrative, right? And, and artists, uh, as all of you are aware, have been uh, uh, provocateurs, they have been uh, challengers, right? They have been... Uh, uh, have, uh, tried very hard in order to help us to see things in ways that we would normally see things. And so in that role, artists are what my anthropologist uh, friends call uh, shamans. And uh, they help us to see right, unseen forces in the world and bring them to, to light right, as well. And artists are also political. Uh, it's hard to be an artist, particularly an indigenous artist, without being political. And so we're going to hear from uh, at least very eight accomplished politician artists, if I can describe you right, in that fashion tonight as well. Uh, the panel tonight is uh, going to consist of a, a discussion. We'll try to have as much discussion as we can with eight people and, and a small audience uh, tonight. I know that it's difficult on Tuesday nights in Peterborough to get people out okay, as well, but I want to thank all of you for coming okay, tonight as well. Uh, just, I guess we're just at the end of the hurricane. We got a bit of the hurricane on yesterday as well, but, uh, and so, and we'll get a bit tomorrow uh, of rain. So thank you for coming and uh, for being part of this uh, conversation tonight as well. I want to introduce the, the, the panel tonight. Uh, and uh, Rebecca Cuddy, right, is uh, a Métis professional vocus, vocalist, right? She is a mezzo-soprano, and she's going to be performing on Thursday, right, in the performance as well. Uh, Ian Cusson, right? Ian Cusson is a, a Métis composer or a composer slash comma Métis, right, as well. I, sometimes I don't know exactly which way all the adjectives should go, right, as, as well. Uh, there are so many slashes these days that uh, my cultural studies colleagues would also be very happy as well. But Ian, uh, you'll see Ian's work on Thursday, correct? Uh, Natty McLaren, right? Natty McLaren. Uh, Natty is a, is a filmmaker, uh, Anishinaabe, storyteller artist, and she works in town uh, with the uh, local Friendship Center, okay, as well. And you would have seen her work in uh, the uh, Muffins for Granny, okay, film as well. Kara uh, Mumford, right, is, is a Métis uh, filmmaker, right? She's the daughter of Mari Mumford, from, who is the Canada Research Chair at the university as well. Uh, Brian Solomon. Uh, is an artist performer, right? Uh, Ojibwe, I think he wants to be called, right? A combination of Ojibwe and Irish, 
Okay. So I tried to, I tried to talk call him a performance artist, but he's an artist performer. So I'm sure he'll tell us the difference, right, between those. <laughs> I, I discovered that as in, as in all, all disciplines, right, the, word, the, the order of the words is extremely important. Uh, and then Alice Williams, right, is a, a, a quilt artist, Honest Nobby, from Crow Lake First Nation. Uh, she's also a mother and great-grandmother and grandmother and great-great-grandmother <laughs> as well. <laughs> and great-great-great-grandmother, <laughs> right, as well. And uh, then representing the Gidigan uh, Project, uh, William Kingfisher, right, who is a curator and gardener and general all-round hellraiser, as he, as he likes to be known. And, uh, uh, and Thomas Oshevsky, right, who is a chef and gardener. I think many of you have seen his work, okay, both in gardens and in food, okay, as well. And then uh, there's B, right, who is a, uh, a university professor, okay, uh, and I try to stay out of the limelight as much as possible, okay, as well. But uh, thank you for, for being here tonight, okay, as well. And so these are the panelists that you, who will be speaking tonight, right, as well. And they're speaking in... I'd like to think in the frame of Louis Riel. Right? Louis Riel said that artists are going to awaken us. Right? Artists are going to be are going to lead the reawakening of Indigenous people in Canada, and these artists are, are doing that as well. They're challenging us. They're helping us to see things in, in a different light. And uh, we have a series of questions that we're going to to uh, ask them and talk about. It. And hopefully, that as we go along that the conversation won't be just with them, but also with you. And so feel free to ask your questions uh, as you go along, right, as well, and engage in dialogue. Okay, and I know this is not set up to be a dialogue, okay, as well. This is set up in sort of typical Greek fashion, right, with a stage up here and you down there, <laughs> right. If you come to our theater at Nozum, you'll see that the distinction between the audience and the, uh, and the performer is uh, unclear at times like, as well. So hopefully that the uh, distinction between discussant on stage and discussing the audience will also be unclear as well. And so feel free to, to ask your questions as we go forward as well. And our plan is to at least uh, talk probably for... Uh, about an hour or so, and we'll try to finish somewhere around 9.15. I have an, an early morning class tomorrow, okay, and I'm a, I'm a morning person and not a night person, okay, as well. And uh, Robin in the audience also teaches with me, so he may have to take the class, and I'll give him my speaking notes, and he can uh, talk about the origins of Indian policy in 15th century Europe. <laughs> and all the papal bulls as well. Okay, but uh, so why don't we start, okay, as well, and uh, we have three questions that we're going to address, and they all have to do with the role of artists in helping to challenge the Canadian narrative, and all of you, I think, are aware that one of the myths that we live in in Canada is that Canada is comprised of two founding nations, and that myth, I think, is under some degree of challenge at the present time. And uh, so the question that I want to ask our, 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 our guest artist is, how do you go about challenging that two-founding myth narrative that informs so much of what we want to do? And I'm not sure how we want to start. We didn't talk about how we're going to proceed, 
right, as well. But since we're in Anishinaabe territory, right, we probably should go and we'll imagine this to be a circle, and you can all see the circle in the front of the stage here, okay, as well. So we'll go clockwise, right? <laughs> and so I think, although, did Anishinaabe have clocks before they arrived with Europeans? Sunrise. Sunrise, right? <laughs> the way the sun rises as well, okay? So we'll call it sunrise and counter-sunrise. Okay, so we'll start with Alice. And there's a uh, microphone in front of you that you can uh, speak in. I should also tell you that this is being recorded, right? And it's going to be available right, as a podcast, right? As part of uh, Indigenous Arts Month that is occurring. So your words have been recorded for posterity. Can you start with somebody else? Can I start with someone else? Okay. Why don't we go the Iroquoian way? Or the Horoshone way as well. Okay, and we can start, okay, with Brian. Ani, uh, I am babe though, so. But the Iroquois are good dancers, so I like that. All except for this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's in you. Everybody can dance. Everybody I do the Iroquois shuffle, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, challenging that narrative... Wow, that's like a massive question. I think uh, by virtue of being alive and on the stage and holding this microphone, I'm challenging that narrative. Um, I, think, uh, I think there's an incredible amount of power um, that is happening right now by, by even just being here uh, with eight of us all together on this stage. This isn't uh, something that I grew up seeing, and I'm not that old. I'm 33, and it's already so much um, has changed. Um, and then there's still so much to change. Uh, I think that's a question um, I'm asking all the time. How do we challenge this narrative? Um, if we're to talk a little bit about our art, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the project I'm doing um, here, Nagoji Wanong Rite of Spring is something, um, a, a dance, a social inclusion project that is a dance project that um, we're performing in the Brock Street um, site. Uh, I never know how to call that site, but it's just like a site. Like, you might know it as a parking lot. Many people know it as a burial site. Many people know it as the Fresh Co. <laughs> I think, and uh, or uh, the shelter that's there, or uh, the Baptist church that's there, or you get this real good view of uh, the Quaker Oats factory there. And um, I'm gathering people there next week for a performance, and it uh, freaks me out in a huge way. It's challenging a lot of um, things that I understand, and I'm entering a zone of protocols that I've never been taught. I've been speaking with um, some people in our host First Nation in Curve Lake, um, trying to be as respectful of the site as possible. And it's hard to acknowledge the reality of that site and to be very respectful of it, because a lot of things go on on that site if you ever hang out there. Um, So I think turning our attention to the things that are right here in front of us, the bodies, that are right here in front of us and um, 
and the physical sites that are left um, is one first step. You know, people are saying truth and reconciliation. It's like, let's just start with truth. Let's not. <laughs> These are big words. And truth is, uh, I'm not an anthropologist, but um, my understanding is most of the communities in Turtle Island in North America are sites that were communities already. That's why they're livable spaces. That's why they have names already. So that's what I'm trying to do is just turn our sights on that. <laughs> that was a good answer. Um, <clears throat> I'm Ian. Um, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm a composer. And so ah, I approach maybe some of the same things um, as many of these artists do uh, from a sound world. And that is, it's a strange place to approach, um, you know, questions of myth and, and some of the things we're talking about here, because often it doesn't include text, it doesn't, um, um, you know, include a, a clear story. And so um, what I've found in my own arts practice, a lot of what I do is, is actually set texts to, uh, to music, um, creating song, um, and uh, one of the projects that I've been a part of recently that is being performed here on Thursday night is um, a setting of uh, some incredible words by um, a Crematee poet, uh, Marilyn Dumont. And, um, and these, sort of similar to what you're saying, Brian, these, these poems, these words, really force uh, the truth of what this nation is and, and some of its less than beautiful parts in front of our eyes. Um, and I, you know, I encountered these works as, um, as a reader, as a student in university, and they, they struck me. And I guess my, my opportunity as, as a composer was to then take these works and rethink them and, and add a kind of um, my own dimension to them, my own sort of sound world to them. And then um, organize them in a way where they could... Um, speak new truths in some ways. Um, uh, and so that's, I mean, that's sort of the way I'm trying to confront some of these myths by truth telling um, in the best way that I know possible. And often that's um, uh, finding and, and celebrating and um, the words of others that have gone before me. So that's the way I've, I've approached this. Hello. I'm Rebecca. Um, I will be singing Ian's wonderful pieces on Thursday. Um, and just to go back um, to the question, which you guys have answered beautifully, um, how do we tackle the myth that, um, <laughs> that there were other nations, um, that there, sorry, that there are just two nations um, that founded this land? Um, obviously, we all know that there were people here before then. Um, that, that goes without saying. But um, it's reminding people that we're still here. Um, it, and through our art, through our many different mediums, we have so many fantastic artists that are exploring their own mediums that they specialize in. But I think one of the truly great things that we can do is work together, come together and um, bring our different talents together to create something innovative and new and interesting that excites an audience and makes them want to listen to 
things that are sometimes not easy to listen to. So um, that's what Ian and I are doing on Thursday. These are very beautiful pieces that he's written stunning music to. Um, Sorry for the texts, um, but they are very challenging. And I think if you leave there feeling good, then you're doing it wrong, Um, (laughs) you know? But um, but the fact, yeah, as a as a singer, I rely on our poets. I rely on our composers to bring the pieces that I can then express to the audience and form a connection with people. Um, so I think working together to bring um, new things and to continue telling our stories, um, to tell our stories from the past two years to, you know, before everybody was here and everything in between is really fantastic. And that's how we combat this myth that some people genuinely believe, you know, it's, we need to work together, not let it, not let it pass us by. Thanks. My name is Cara Mumford and I am a filmmaker. Um, and, well, I guess the hyphenates I left off were, I say, writer, filmmaker, collaborative artist. Um, so most of my films are collaborative creations. I don't just sit down and write them and, and then direct them. I, I write something and then get together with the group I'm making it with, and we go through it and, and co-create the, the piece together. Um, and so in terms of this question, the the... First thing I thought of was a phrase that I've used when I've helped out in my mom's uh, class on the history of Indigenous theatre in Canada. And it's about visioning the future and revisioning the past for me. Um, so the, the narratives that we get fed in the mainstream are one version, and they usually don't contain our stories. So we're not making these things up. It's just giving you a new vision of that past through a different set of eyes, Uh, and I think that's hugely important. Uh, And then visioning the future, that there's all sorts of talk by, you know, people in other cultures and and, and communities of of, uh, what the future is going to look like, and and there's a huge push right now um, in Indigenous community for Indigenous futurisms, which is something that I'm exploring myself, and and I'm currently working, editing a project, uh, and I'll be going home and keep working on it, um, that's going to be screening at the Imaginative Festival. It's set in this territory 150 years from now, um, where the Michisagik have regained a large portion of their territory um, and have become a sovereign nation and becomes a place where non-Indigenous people want to come and live, but under Indigenous governance this time. Um, so it's, it's changing the narrative going forward. Um, so that, for me... It's those two things, the visioning of the future and the revisioning of the past is how, how I like to tackle uh, this, this myth. Um, my name is Nadia, and... Uh, I'm a filmmaker, but my background is drawing and painting. And I guess you could say uh, storytelling is the the thread that connects all of them. Um, How can artists challenge this myth? 
I think just like what Brian said, it's, it's by being. Um, I have an instinct probably instilled by uh, my family and where I come from, but my instinct and, and the truths that I've been sort of shown has everything to do with acknowledging where I come from, where I have been, where I am now, and where I am going. I think that the role of artists is in, it's very much happening, is that we blur those lines. You know, we, we mix it all up, and, and instead of um, thinking in the institutionalized way of, of you know, the very, uh, what's that word? Um, linear way of what art is in history. I really liked the fact that we're, that I, because I can only really speak for myself, like, it's like I, I feel my feet planted on the ground, you know, this land. I have a connection to it, and that I can, I can just by being, blur those lines about who I am. And luckily, um, in high school and throughout growing up, watching um, certain things unfold before my eyes, we, we can call them racism now, but then I didn't know what that was. Um, I just didn't buy what people were feeding me because, really, truly because of the love I had for my grandmother and our family. And I think that that instinct to not listen, what, it's almost, I describe it as um, putting it on the shelf, knowing that one day I might understand these things better. And um, I'm glad I did that because it kept me focused on that love, the love of, of the things that I had been taught. Um, my grandmother was a residential school survivor, and um, because I was, like, I went to school as an artist, drawing and painting. It was my way of honoring the people and places I love. But when she passed, her story went with her. And so I had to adjust who I was in order to tell her story painting her portrait and putting her story beside her in a gallery wasn't going to give the story, her story, justice. So I had to uh, rearrange my art, um, which was obviously like now a huge blessing, but took me five years to figure out to become a documentary filmmaker just to honor those stories. Um, so what I'm saying is, is that... I think maybe that, that blood memory of not thinking in that linear way, just, just by being, as Brian so eloquently said right at the beginning, um, just allowed me to be and allowed me to say what I had to say, um, including what I'm doing now, which is working with uh, urban ind indigenous families as a cultural resource coordinator. It's... It's, it all makes sense, even though it might not make sense, you know, if you were to categorize it in a resume. But it's because of this being and understanding. It's almost like it's just really just a pull to love. And what is that pull and what is that love? And how do I tell that story? I think is a good way to, to blur it all and mess it all up. Miigwech. <laughs> Hello, Anin. Uh, my name is Thomas. Um, I am from Rama First Nation. 
I now live in Curve Lake First Nation. Uh, I am the owner of the uh, Grandfather's Kitchen, a small catering company serving uh, the surrounding area with indigenous-inspired dishes. I am also the founding member of the Gittigan Project. Uh, the Gittigan Project is a nonprofit corporation with a mandate to explore ways to, and opportunities of how uh, First Nations uh, communities can become self-reliant and sustainable in regards to food production and food security. Um, how I challenge this myth is to continue gardening and to feed the people the best food possible. Hi, Anin. My name is William Kingfisher. Um, I'm also from Rama, but I live um, in Bridge North, which is a town just a little bit north of Peterborough. And um, let's see, how can we, how can artists challenge this myth of, of two founding nations? Um, I know to challenge that is 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 pretty pretty hard. Um, it's uh, the myth of founding nations is pretty strong and deep within the national identity. But I think for me, um, um, a quote from the 1930s comes to mind when I when I think about um, what it is to challenge that myth as an Aboriginal person um, in art. In 1930s, there was um, um, photographer Henry Cartier Bresson. And um, he was talking about the work of um, Ansel Adams and Edward Weston. And he said quite indignantly, he goes like this, he goes, the world is going to pieces and Adams and Weston are photographing rocks. So, you know, so for me, it's kind of like, it kind of talks to me a little bit about why we started the Gittigan Project. <clears throat> and, um, the idea behind that was to, so that we could focus on, on things that are really important um, um, to, um, to kind of give us a space to kind of look at some of the important things that are facing our communities. And as well as facing, you know, we got the communities, but we also have these issues that are, are global. So, so we wanted to, my brother and I, we started um, Get the Gettigan Project. Um, um, See, it was late 19 or 2015, <clears throat> and what what we wanted to do was um, um, create a an organization so that you know we could we could do long term projects and bring in other people in the community and and try to talk a little bit about some of our ideas and solutions and what we're trying to do to 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 you know work in the community in these local communities, but also look at and try to address. Um, um, global issues, you know, while while working with our own worldviews and philosophies, and the art projects come from um, sharing these ideas. We've done performance projects out there. We've done um, visual art projects. We're working on um, a sign. Um, we call it the Glyphs Project that talks about our work in the garden to try to get um, the community interested in gardening. Um, my brother here. We've done like performances where we're just feeding the community with, with our with our food um, that we've grown in the gardens. Uh, we try to revitalize it and get people interested in that. And my brother, he does a lot of thinking about like food sovereignty um, um, and, and how we need to create a, a base of our, for our own food. Um, 
one of the things we're thinking about and we're, we're working on a little bit, but uh, we hope to expand on like a seed um, bank. Um, so that's, I think, how we're challenging it and trying to, but I know at the same time it's a pretty deep-seated um, um, myth. So, so for us, we're just trying to do our work in the community and try to um, keep our work relevant, keep it interesting, and try to, um, try to get other people involved. And it's not just for us, but we try to think of, um, you know, and sharing our ideas with, um, with not only the Curve Lake community, which is where we work, um, but also Trent community. We have a garden um, at Trent as well, um, and we do work in, in the Peterborough area. It's okay. Um, thank you. Miigwech. Miigwech. Um, Bujo. My name is Alice Williams, and I'm a traditionally built Anishinaabekwe. <laughs> I don't look like my daughters. <laughs> I come from northwestern Ontario originally, um, a place called, in our language, Namekusipink, and in English, that's Trout Lake. Um, it's pretty um, uh, rocky over there, so it's very difficult to plant a garden. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, I don't have a problem with um, the state of Canada uh, being founded by two nations. Um, that is uh, foreign to us, and I want to say, well, let them go ahead. <laughs> and uh, so, um, but when I think about the land, um, country, I think about the country, the land, our land that creation gave to us. Um, and um, I just... I don't, in my way of thinking, I don't include that when I think about our land and that it happens to be called Canada. Um, one time I was talking to my friends, she was white, and I, I, um, we were, were talking about the land and and I said to her, you know, uh, the, the, the invaders, Instead of calling them settlers, I said invaders, invaders, and she said to me, well, you know, we really weren't all invaders. I mean, the guys who brought our ancestors over here, like uh, Robinson and uh, the people, for example, in this area, they, uh, they were the invaders, and they brought people who were poor and... Uh, um, they were given the land that was being taken away from us. But so in uh, uh, the 150-year celebrations and all, I, um, I started thinking about this like a year ago, and uh, I've not gotten around to fulfilling what I thought I would do. But there's been a lot of fabric around in stores, fabrics um, that celebrate the 150 years. There are some with, with moose and innumerable 
um, fabrics displaying um, maple leaves. And so uh, my big idea was to buy a, a piece of fabric that has a map of Canada on it and the Canada goose and the maple leaf. And I thought of writing over along the top of it saying, all Canada is Indian land. I like to use the word Indian because most of our peoples um, on the reserves, we refer to ourselves as Indians. We don't call ourselves um, um, Anishin, um, Ojibwe's or whatever, um, um, Aboriginals and Indigenous people. But if we use our own language, we call ourselves Anishinaabeg. We are the people. And um, so um, I still have to do that before the year is up, I think, right? Um, all Canada is native land. Okay, so thank you. Anyone want to make any other comments at, at this point? No comments? You're all being very quiet, right? Okay. <laughs> How about audience? They're also very quiet. They're like students, right? <laughs> I'd like, David, I'd like to make a comment. Okay, comment, and then there's one back here. Okay, as well. Um, I just have a little note written here. Like, there is only one history, and that's the history of this land, and it has a story. You know, and 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 I think we can all agree to that. Um. That's it. <laughs> okay, so telling the history of the land as opposed to the history of the country. Yeah. Yes. Sure. Um, so the, uh, the, the film that I'm, I'm editing right now is it's called Red Card World, The Tree. So it's a, a, an introduction to this world that I intend to spend a lot of time writing stories about and making films about. Um, but this first one introduces a main character and um, a tree, uh, a sugar maple in this region that is over 500, over 500 years old. Um, and through working with a couple of different women, uh, Jade Willoughby at first and then Christine Friday, um, uh, and Jade, they're both Anishinaabe, but uh, Jade is... Uh, from Treaty 3, I think, and um, Christine is from Tamagami. And uh, so Jade came up with this concept of, because um, we've been reading a lot about the, the natural tree communication network uh, through the, the uh, fungi and, and all of that. And, and, and so Jade was like, well, what if, as Anishinaabe people, we renewed our natural understanding with the trees um, and they let us use their information system. Um, and so it's like, wow, that's really cool. Okay, so that came in. So that was the first sort of tree element there. And then when Christine came on board, uh, she talked about this project that she worked on, the very first piece that she ever choreographed. She's a dancer, and this is her first time doing strictly narrative uh, film as an actress. Um, but uh, her family uh, talks about um, the trees as being portals 
uh, to the, another dimension where the ancestors are. And that in her territory, her mother brought back the tradition of feasting the trees. Um, and, and so that, again, allowed sort of access back to those portals. Um, so in this future world, um, it's po after what I call the Great Cleansing, um, and there are pockets of civilization, but the uh, Michisagik territory is the uh, most um, uh, established, um, secure environment. Um, and so it's sort of the, the moment when a new threat sort of emerges uh, about which I won't go into, barely touches on in there. Um, but um, it's just sort of a disruption in this territory that's been established. Um, and uh, so it's, it's just an intro into that world. And so it's playing at, Imaginative, at the Imaginative Festival on Sunday, October 22nd at 12.45 p.m. as part of the From the Fox to the Possum screening. <laughs> Okay. Okay, so thank you. Any other comments you want to make at this point? As you were as you were talking, I was thinking of George Bush, which is an odd thing to think about, right? <laughs> George Bush the first as opposed to George Bush the second, right? And and and, he, and his inaugural speech talked about a thousand points of light, right? As well. And so the strategy for change, right, in his view was to create a thousand points of light. And so you begin to create these sites of incredible uh, imagination and creativity, and that they would eventually then begin to spread and begin to overwhelm, right, as well. And that change would have come as a result of, of the creating an increase in number of uh, points of light, right, as well. And it reminded me of Willie Irwin's talk about sparkles. So Willie Irwin talked about uh, indigenous health as being based upon sparkles, that uh, we have bodies and that they sparkle, that the inside of ourselves sparkle. And, and the way that we begin to uh, uh, create uh, life and to, to create health was to increase the number of sparkles. And so I think that the way uh, that what ours do is increase our sparkles, right, as well. And I, I like that, okay, as a way of thinking about the work that you're doing. And, and the more and more sparkles you have, the more and more healthy you are, right? And so you're also creating health and sustainability. That's what I was thinking about when you were talking, okay, as well. George Bush and Willie Ermine, so both, in, in both, I guess, uh, philosophers of a different type, right, and artists of a different type as well. We don't often think of, of presidents as artists, and currently not this one that we're dealing with okay, as well. So, that's another topic, right, <laughs> as well. But thank you uh, as well. As you can see, it takes a lot to challenge the... The, the, the national narrative, right, as well. The, the next question is, is about your own work, okay, as well. And uh, just for the audience, uh, art, I see artists as people who can see unseen forces, who can see in the unseen forces of society, social forces, economic, political, spiritual uh, forces in, in society. And... Uh, most of us can't see them, so they can sense bigger patterns. They can sense things that often most of us can't, uh, can't begin to sense. And then they begin to try to bring those forces uh, to life, begin to uh, show them to us. And so part of the political role of artists 
is to bring the forces that they see to the forefront and help us to see them. And so the question is, what forces do you see? Right? And it's not, I, uh, it's not I see dead people, right? as the old uh, movie goes, right? as well, looking at the television. Okay? But what are the forces that you begin to see right, uh, that affect our country, affect our lives, and how do you begin to bring them forward right, in, in what you do okay, every day? And maybe we'll start again, right? With, uh, do you want to start with you, or do you want to move by someone else as well? You set the tone last time, so... Open up and let it come out. <laughs> I'll probably start in the same spot. I start with the body, um, and it's it's neat that it went to um, Trout Lake, and you're talking about it being really rocky. It's really rocky where I'm from too. Jibanoning. Uh, it's like um, like here. It's a big canoe place. It's the top of the Great Lakes, like Huron, going into. Um, Superior by Manitoulin, and it's so rocky. It's awesome. It rocks. <laughs> it's incredible. There's, um, and talking about sparkliness too, there's, there's rocks there that are silicite. They're um, quartz crystals mixed with white granite and silica. And when the, when the light hits them right, it, uh, they glow. They'll blind you. There's, it's like a snow blindness and um, one of those two nations the French named them the Lacloche Mountains <laughs> the Cloud Mountains but they're way more like a just massive sparkling beam out of there and they charge the water there's hundreds of lakes there that um, have been super lucky they're not um, a road only went into the community when um, my dad was a teenager. I was born 20 years after the road went in, so I'm lucky I got a little bit of the old ways, and we gardened, everybody gardened. Now nobody does, but when I was a kid, people were still doing that. And the like, trap line wasn't in place still, but we were still doing that. And I, I didn't understand the difference between, because um, we also, there was no cable, so we had like a rickety antenna. We watched like three channels that I hated. <laughs> now I'm like, whew, I'm very lucky actually that that's all there was because I, I didn't know, nobody knew the difference between what was traditional and what was um, this contemporary mm -hmm. world that's left from these two founding nations. And it's only when I left out of there, I went to Sudbury and then um, I came to Toronto to study art that I started to go back in my mind and I was like, whoa, what were we doing there? That was incredible. And it was with our bodies. And I, and I look at it now and I go, wow, like what, uh, like my father or um, other people, my Papa Wabus and other people, like what they have in one body, the knowledge they have in one body. I'll be talking with friends and they'll think, I'm really smart and I know a lot about the bush. And I do, with a lot of pride, know quite a bit about the bush. I grew up in it and I'm very um, self-sufficient in it. But compared to the old women and old men from where I'm from, it's like, my God, that's like it's worth 20 doctorates, what one of those people has. And, uh, and it's in the blood and in the DNA. And 
and I'm, I'm starting to not see a difference between, uh, or the difference is starting to become less for me between our physical bodies, you know, my human and a schnabe with the land, they functioning the same way. And there's a lot of stories and teachings that reflect that, but it's a different thing to, to understand it. And when I look at um, the two, they, they function the same way, they get sick um, the same way. And um, I'm just kind of lost within that right now. <laughs> so that's, that's all, I, all I can do with that, is just try and keep following that and understanding that and bringing our bodies in places as a, as a power. Gwich. Um, so as a, as a composer, one of the things I, I love, and just as a person, uh, one of the things I love, it's a very European form, long history, is opera. And um, it's a weird thing to love in 2017 as a younger person. Um, but it is, it is a form that has fascinated me since I was a kid. And I think it's a form that's really, really complex and has a lot of potential, um, particularly potential for storytelling. And there is virtually, like I can count it on one hand, um, you know, very little indigenous opera, um, especially indigenous opera by indigenous people. Um, and I think it's, it's an incredible, uh, you know, I look at myself and I think of, of the kind of opportunities or circumstances that I've had in my life that have brought me to a place to love opera, which is a weird thing. Uh, but for me, in response to your question, I think it's, it's looking at storytelling through this really uh, interesting form and being able to think about what kinds of stories um, don't exist in the opera house, uh, what kinds of, of people or characters do we not see um, and, and could we see? Um, I know we'll get to it later as to sort of a, a renewed interest with people, but I've had some encouraging conversations about um, with, with significant, you know, opera folks um, about wanting to see more Indigenous story in opera and wanting to have that come from Indigenous voices. So... Um, you know, uh, that this is, I think that this is a really powerful tool is to be able to tell very specific stories about very um, particular people, whether they be imagined or, or historic, um, and, to, and to capture um, people's minds and hearts. And I really think that's, the, that's um, something that opera does very well, something that I want to do in opera. And I think that has a way of, of showing especially um, a mainly settler community that would sit in an opera house um, that there are many stories that exist and are worth telling and that have deep human resonance, even for, for them. Um, and I think you know this is this is an area that is, is feels like an uphill battle um, to to uh, to do. It's also very time consuming to do and complex and expensive to mount and all that stuff. But it's worth doing so. Um, working on some projects now, and one one of them is is it's it's a really challenging one. I was chatting with uh, uh, Rebecca about this earlier. Um, <laughs> 
how to go about telling particular stories in ways that are not exploitative in and of themselves. I mean, you take a, you take a story and you place it in a particular context and it gives different resonances to the, that story. Um, and so, you know, I, I do come back to this kind of being um, truthful um, as best as possible and um, being able to tell stories that are very specific, very personal, um, that are important and that need to be told um, in the most compelling ways possible. Essentially making, trying to make the greatest art we can. And I think there's something of, you know, a commitment to making excellent art um, that is critical uh, to a watching world because if the world can't turn away from it, they are forced um, to look at it and to take it in and to deal with it. So I think that's this, this sort of commitment and approach and the form that at least I've taken in that. My answer is gonna sound a lot like Ian's because I love opera too. Um, as we mentioned earlier, I'm an opera singer, um, and uh, yeah, Ian are, and I are working together on this upcoming performance, and we were having quite a, a discussion on the way from Toronto to Peterborough tonight. Um, and uh, yeah, opera is a fantastic um, delivery system for stories. Um, not only is it incredible musically, but it's also um, a visual spectacle when done well. Um, so I, I just, I think it's fantastic to explore um, indigenous stories in them. And I have been very excited by the amount of composers that have taken an interest, but I'm particularly excited when they're indigenous um, and even more so when they want to work with me on them. Um, but yes, uh, yeah, it, it's a fantastic way to tell our stories. Um, and I, I just love opera because it can also include dance. Um, it can include incredible artwork in terms of set. It really is Gesamtkunstwerk, um, the whole total work, art, piece of art. And uh, um, so that's what's always fascinated me about performing opera. I'm also very interested in contemporary music um, itself. Um, I like working with composers that are living and uh, and especially <laughs> working with uh, composers on um, works that are exploring indigenous uh, lives and from many different perspectives um, what yeah what I was kind of touching on earlier um, I particularly was drawn to Ian's work um, on these poems by Marilyn Dumont because um, they are hard. They're very difficult to read. Um, they're very difficult to get through as an indigenous person and um, the fact that most of, I agree with um, these two before me, most of uh, these works will be seen by uh, vast majority settler style people. Um, so to deliver those difficult stories and have them leave feeling like they've learned but also connected and see us as, as real people who have struggled. Um, that's really what I'm after when I, when I take part in projects like this. Um, and uh, just to 
touch on it. Uh, um, I know this is probably fresh in everybody's mind. I was very disappointed earlier in the week because of a particular ruling on a settlement um, where when Métis people and non-status people were not considered as part of uh, indigenous groups. It was very hurtful to um, once again have the realization, once again, that uh, in the place that we live, we're not considered deserving of certain things. It's a very difficult thing to continue to have shown to you, especially when you didn't, I didn't grow up um, realizing I was any different uh, until one day I did. And now I'll never stop realizing. So that's why this art is really important to me, just to show everybody we're people, we're here, and we're not going anywhere. Thank you. Miigwech. Excuse me. Um, so I'm just going back at the question uh, about the, the sensing forces um, that most of us can't see. And, and so when, when I read that initially, uh, what I thought off right off the bat was the, the threads of connection uh, that are so important for me and that inform pretty much all of my films. And that's uh, the connection between women, the land, um, and, and being indigenous, and, and that all of those things are um, completely enmeshed with each other for me. Uh, and I, I, I wouldn't be able to talk about one without the other, any of the others. So, um, so that's what I'm always working with, is balancing those connections, and, and sometimes I'm more focused on, on one than the other. Uh, but they're all always there, the three of them together. Um, and then, and the other thing for me is I, with my filmmaking, uh, I really like to sort of, I don't know if the, the right word is, elevate it, but sort of like bring it out of the here and now. And so uh, a lot of my films have been dance films in the past, because uh, that's been a way that to me really uh, takes you out of the here and now, out of the mundane daily life. Um, and also, uh, now that I'm embarking with this futurisms project, science fiction. So I know that they seem like two wildly different things, but for me, they both serve the same purpose um, in, in terms of letting me tell a story that I wouldn't be able to tell if I just stuck to uh, physical uh, ways of being in this world without uh, spirit, without movement, without... Um, yeah, I guess I'm just sort of trying to bring back my uh, thoughts here. Uh, Gerald Visner talks about, uh, and I don't have the quotes with me, but motion as sovereignty. And, and so for me, I look at dance as being that so that, uh, and, and I think it's a very good metaphor when you think of the restrictions placed on indigenous dance that were only lifted uh, in the 50s, I think. Um, and um, so that really, when I read these quotes by Visner, I was like, that's like a metaphor, but it's also like really literal um, that indigenous dance is a form of sovereignty, individual sovereignty and collective sovereignty. Um, and I think that uh, for me now that I'm visioning towards the future, I'm also looking at those notions of, of sovereignty uh, there. Um, 
And so it all, again, though, comes back to the land and that indigenous connection with the land. And, and for me, as an indigenous woman, um, how, how I relate to the land. Um, so I guess those are the connections, forces that I'm working with. You're a hard act to follow. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> the first thing I thought of when I thought the, the unseen worlds and bringing them out and speaking about them was, was that I only have myself to see. And I say that by, by just thinking literally about it, like by being in my body. And I think, if I can find a way to go inside here and, and communicate everything that that is, like I had said before with the four directions of where I come from, where I've been, where I am now, and where I'm going, then I think, I think it takes a whole life to pursue that question. To, you know, and, and you, you get a thread, a little light, and you follow it, and then it takes you over here and you follow that as well. Um, my, at the moment, so my, my background is drawing and painting. I made a film to honor my grandmother. Um, and right now I'm, I'm finishing a graphic novel project called Evergood, and that's something she always said. She, uh, she would always say to people, oh, Evergood, my girl, or Evergood, my boy. And I often think about what Evergood is. What did she mean by that? Um, first of all, I'm really aware of the luxury that I have in, in speaking. When, when I first... Um, I come from, from Sulacote, which is four hours north of Thunder Bay. And when I first came to the city to be an artist, to study art, um, I had the luxury of having a road out of my community in order to fulfill my dreams. And if, and if I fell on hard times, I had the luxury of being able to go home and have a soft place to land, which I went home a lot. <laughs> um, so, you know, we have to think of the people in northern communities, the young people who don't have that luxury to leave, um, to pursue who they are, because the price is too high. Like, if they leave, it's $2,000 or whatever, like, probably more to charter a flight back home. And if I, would, if I had to choose between leaving my grandmother and possibly never coming back or not coming back for five or three or even two years, I'd be very reluctant to leave. So there's that luxury I talk about. Um, and then it, it really is simply, you know, when, once I started finding my voice as an artist um, and looking around me in the city and looking at, you know, s s some things kept nagging at me. Let's, let's say that. Um, you know, the street people at Bathurst and Spadina, um, it was all the same things I kept seeing. And, and the way that I can describe it is it was like the, the pain I saw in my people's eyes that, that reminded me of my grandmother's and, and the, peop the people in my community. It was like kept repeating itself. Um, 
And so, again, I just shelved these things I didn't understand quite yet. I just put them away, put them there. And um, when I first went into my first sweat lodge, I was working with Native Child and Family Services. I was a, a youth program coordinator, and we painted murals all around the city. And I had the luxury of learning about um, the birch bark scrolls of the area, the, the, the historical, the true historical context of, of Toronto and what that meant to indigenous peoples of the land, of the area, the meeting ground. Um, Ontario means beautiful lake. Toronto means the meeting place. And so I was learning these things and, and, it, and it all just felt very um, natural for me, very, very much like home. In, again, inside this body. <laughs> so, um, so when I went into that first sweat lodge, because because we were dealing with at-risk youth, the, the people I worked with said I should um, go in to heal, right? And I thought, oh, that's really great because I'm really excited, and I never had this opportunity back home. And uh, and I honestly thought I was going to talk about, you know a roommate I had that we couldn't get along and, and the pressures of trying to pay rent and, and I was in school full-time and working part-time and all these things that, that I thought were really bothering me. And the first thing I said when it, when it was my turn to speak was I want to wipe my granny's tears. And, and that was an unseen force inside. When we talk about blood memory. Um, is the, the, we don't even know. Like, I think artists find a way, all artists, not just indigenous, find a way to communicate that thing that stirs inside them. And you, you can't help it. You can't escape it. You just can't. Um, so when I think of Evergood and I think of what my granny used to always say, I also think of how my whole life I was told, you know, we lost our culture or we're losing this or you know what how native are you or how white are you like it was all very confusing but again I just my grandfather and grandmother came together because of love so I had that luxury of just brushing it all, all off um, and if I didn't feel like explaining myself I would tell people we were Italian <laughs> Because <laughs> that fit the that fit too, you know. And but because again, I, I just had to find the words. And um, so I thought, how could I be less than anything? How could I have lost anything if my grandmother like survived residential school and 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 brought the community together to feed them, just like what Thomas and William are doing? How? how that is not, I just don't buy it. And so with my current project, Evergood, I realized that, that her story might have passed on with her, but she left me with enough to keep going. She left me with the essentials of who I am and who she was and who our ancestors are um, that can be best described as the Evergood, you know? And, and so my responsibility 
is to acknowledge the luxury of speaking, first of all. Um, and I'm talking in the context of the world, too. We're, we live in a world where not many societies accept women's voices um, or who are just so busy surviving through wars and, and famine that to think of talking about art, I mean, is crazy, right? So I'm very thankful for that. Um, so the unseen worlds, it's like, it's everything they spoke of. Um, and it's just really truly like going back to, I only have myself to see, you know? If I can be really truthful and just, and trust that that truth is enough and voice it, then, then, then I think I could find the other little light to chase after that. Miigwech. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, after I read this, um, I, I wrote things down for this uh, particular question, but then I watered it up and I threw it out and I started over again because I don't know if all artists has this for, has, can sense these forces. I, I, I don't really kind of buy that. Um, what, I, what I do think, though, is most artists are really smart. Uh, they're women and men uh, of their time. They, they read things, they're, they're up on current events, and they can kind of see this path that we're on. And maybe a lot of people don't. I mean, you know, they're busy, we're all busy doing things, that there are certain things that we don't see where this person is picking up this up over there and is painting it, and we're like, wow, that's, that's deep. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, maybe Norval Moore so no, he was a shaman. Uh, he, can, he can see things, but uh, I don't think most artists are. Um, but for me, what forces do I see? I, I, I live in a world of food. I live on a, a res, and every day when I'm on that res, I, I see the damage that's been done. Uh, and I see... I see so many things that has been done to these people, and everything from sexual, you know, uh, uh, just from school, the residential schools to, to everything. Um, what can I do? And what, what do I see in the future? Well, one of the things I see is just a, a food. Uh, and this is not just a, a Anishinaabe uh, problem. I think this is a world problem. I, uh, when, when capitalism went to the... Uh, uh, to, to like India, Pakistan, uh, um, Brazil, uh, China. I mean, we're not talking about just a, a couple of million people getting into the system. We're talking billions. And, and how, and how, is this, how is this possible to, to keep up with this? Especially with, with this system of monocropping that is just ruining huge swaths of land on this earth. It, I just, it, there's, it's going to come to a head. And, and so my concern is, well, of course it's everyone, but my main concern is with the Anishinaabe people. And what can I do to uh, uh, maybe alleviate some of this, you know? Uh, so the Gitkin Project and what we're doing in Curve Lake is trying to build a system, uh, a sustainable system. Uh, and I don't call, I call it food security. And I think that all of us, all, all through around uh, Peterborough, I think we should be paying more attention to that part. I mean, uh, we have 
a lot of the uh, women doing the water walks and bringing that to our attention, but I think food's next in line, <laughs> really. Thank you. I don't know what you're talking about because I definitely see forces. Forces with you. The writers and, and um, artists that I, you know, have discussions going on with, um, uh, we talk a lot about, um, you know, this era called the Anthropocene. Um, it's a common, it seems to be a, um, a common term used to describe, you know, living in the contemporary world, um, one of, um, um, that is increasingly diminished in, in, in a toxic world. And we do see this. Um, you know, it's, it's no secret that, um, that this era, um, that the human impact on the earth has become a, so forceful that we are seeing shifting seas, huge changes in climate, and the disappearance of numerous species, as well as placing humanity on uh, the brink of extinction. But um, so we, uh, you know, um, my discussions tend to talk about these global issues that that um, that are large, but we also see them in in the local. You know, in our local, like in the garden, we see that. Like this year, how much rain did we have? You know, and the year before that, how, you know, what kind of drought did we have? It was like, okay, and you see that in the, in the um, you know, in how things are growing. Um, but um, as a curator and as an artist, um, with the, I, I think of the artist as, 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 as an art practice. Um, um, and so I also see it as a, as a curatorial space. So what, I'm, what we're trying to do um, in that space is we try to create a space of commonality um, so that, um, um, so, you know, in the garden project, people can come and work in the garden and, and be part of that, but there's also the art practice where um, I bring in artists who can talk about the different, um, um, the different ways of being or the or different um, things that the garden teaches you as you're working in it. Um, the garden can act as that space and it can act as a curatorial space. It can bring people together and share ideas and can respond to thinking about the differences, different issues that arise um, uh, when creating the garden and, and the different things that, um, that are affecting us in a larger world. Um, what I would like to see to happen is that see that our experiences as Anishinaabeg people, our traditional knowledge, and our ways of being are seen as important today, and maybe can offer some sort of um, um, ideas when when um, taking on these larger problems. Which. Um, I I just had an interesting. Uh, conversation in uh, in the green room and actually we didn't get to talk too much but um, I told I was saying that I was a, a quilter and um, Ian, Ian uh, um, asked me if I had any uh, pictures of my work and I showed him them and then, uh, Ian, you said that um, you were really surprised when you looked at my pictures, and you said, this isn't what I was thinking of at all. 
So I'm really interested in finding out. We didn't have time to talk. So I think this would be a good time for you to tell me. Really? Yeah, I'm not kidding. I wish we could show them because they're so beautiful. Um, uh, your work was fascinating. I, you know, I guess when I see quilt work, um, I imagine particular patterns, and I've learned some of the, the names of some patterns that people Log make. Log cabin. Log cabin. Dresden plate. There you go. Nine patterns. <laughs> Broken plates. Yeah, all these things. So I, maybe I expected that, and there was something very um, non-geometric at times. There were softer edges. There were... Um, you know, uh, loons and birds and trees, and it was quite incredible. And I, I guess I, I, I've not seen that work before. And then I thought, where do I get one of these? <laughs> and then I thought, I probably can't afford one of these. But then, well, that's what I thought. Oh, thank you for that. Um, um, my quilts speak of my double heritage. My father is white, and my mother is Anishinaabe, and my mother is um, from the Sulukot area, Laksul Band. And um, um, what I thought of when I was wanting to do this quilting, I took a course in quilting, a very simple course with all the um, um, normal quilting blocks. And then I, I um, gee, I was already 38 when I discovered quilting. And I thought... You know, I loved it so much. That's how, that's how my art form hit me uh, after I had raised children and all. And um, I thought that um, I love this work so much that I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And uh, and then I also, as I was working, I thought about it in terms of, um, you know, uh, when we our age group, like those quilters over there, um, they um, we were t they were have school was heavy into, uh, you know, your name, your grade, and what are your hobbies. So we're supposed to put something down for our hobbies. And I guess quilting is supposed to be a hobby after you do your housework or you go to work, whatever it is, then you can quilt. <laughs> and um, But I thought in my mind, I thought, you know what? I'm going to try and change this around. Housework and all that stuff that goes along with it is going to be my hobby, and my work is going to be my quilting. <laughs> and I guess that's how come I churned out so many of them. I'm not as um, productive as I used to be. Um, so my quilts, like I said, represent my double heritage, and, and it was a very... Um, 
um, prescribed way how I dreamed up about doing it. And I said to myself, well, uh, um, all of us are, are individuals. And what makes me who I am? And I really thought about that. And I said, I have certain um, um, experiences because my dad is white and my mother is Indian. I could have never had that experience. And I thought even in our family, in, with my siblings, we grew up very differently from our real Anishinaabe aunties and uncles and cousins. And uh, so I thought, how I, I, want, I want people to know that Anishinaabe woman made this quilt. And um, I thought about it, and I thought, well, I, in the center of my quilts, I'm going to put Anishinaabe things. And um, I thought first of the land and, and the people and the animals, the birds, the plants. And I thought, in the, that's going to be in the center. I am Anishinaabe. I want to put those things in the center of my quilts. And also that this is this these uh, things from the land. I want to put them in the center of our quilts because they are of the land just like we are. And then um, and then I thought I will put um, the um, con conventional quilt blocks around the center picture because I also loved making those blocks. You'd think there was nothing to it, but they're interesting to make, aren't they? <laughs> and um, so, it, so I loved making those uh, conventional quilt blocks, and I changed them once in a while, but um, I, uh, people like the pictures in the middle, and yet, deep in my heart, I love doing those um, uh, quilt blocks. So people admire my center while I admire the frame or the decoration around <laughs> the main picture. And um, so I don't know, I don't know if I'm seeing the unseen or bringing vision to reality. That's just the way I do it. Okay. So, uh, thank you. Thank you all right, you're all very keen observers of the social, right? And all keen observers of, of, of the, the forces around you. So, that's excellent. so we're going to move on to the last question. I'm going to change it just a bit, okay, as well. In that, uh, well, we're going to make a bit of a. I was going to say word poem, but all words are poems, aren't they? Mm -hmm. okay. Not all poems are words, though. But, uh, and so, what will the, the question is? And we're in an unprecedented uh, period in Canadian history with an incredible amount of attention being paid to Indigenous issues through the lens of reconciliation. The challenge is how do you ensure that this is long-lasting and that it's not just a flavor of the day? Right? Because we live in an environment in which we all want 
the new. Modernity requires us to pay attention to the new and desire the new. And so what I'm going to ask you is to come up with one word that describes how you would keep the attention of Canadians on reconciliation over the long term. And, and so while you're thinking about that, right, we'll give you a couple minutes to, to think, okay, as well. Okay, it's just like a, it's like a test, right? <laughs> so you got to come up with one word, right, as well. And uh, while, while you're thinking, uh, you know, all of these, all all of these people, all these artists have have demonstrated imagination and the power of, of imagination. Right? I, I went to see in 1998 the Spirit Sings, the the uh, curated uh, exhibition of indigenous artifacts that was prepared for the Glenblow Museum. And what struck me was that all of that work was the power of imagination. And I began to see colonization as destroying, taking away our imagination, and as being uh, forcing us to think of ourselves in a particular fashion. And so I saw all of those artists who created all of those pieces as anti-colonial activists who began to bring back the imagination. And so I theorized that recreating imagination, active modern imagination, is one of the primary acts of decolonizing because it gives us the ability to imagine ourselves differently. Our imaginations come back, and that's what all these artists have, have done, is they've brought our imagination back, and they are acting, right, to decolonize Canada and to challenge that, that, that national narrative, because that narrative doesn't allow us to imagine ourselves in Canada as contributing people. It forces, it, the narrative tells us to see Canada and ourselves in a different fashion. So over as we uh, move through reconciliation, right, the danger is that it disappears. And so how do we use our imaginations to keep it alive? And so you have one word answer and we'll go as quickly as we can. And we'll see what we come up with. Okay. Uh, create. Tenacity. Generous. I can't do one word because I'm not interested in maintaining the Canadian gaze. Indifference. Nourishing. Um, gratitude. Educating. Okay, and there you have it. And thank you very much. Okay. So eight artists, eight imaginations, eight spirits, and eight worlds. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay.
And I think do we, we have time for a couple questions. Are there questions from the audience? Or it's 9.30? 9.34, actually. Okay. As well? They're all quiet or they've gone to sleep? Just like students in my lectures, right? Okay, maybe you can talk with them after then? They're, 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 they're quite talkative and friendly. Okay? They're telling you to ask a question, so. Okay. They're night people. Right. Okay, yes. My question is, is uh, when you're creating your art, your art uh, who, what audience are you thinking about? Are you thinking more indigenous folks? Are you thinking more non-indigenous folks? And, and or can you come up with a project that speaks to both? Because it's David's questions tonight all had all kind of implied that as artists you would be out there kind of prodding and poking and doing some of those things. We are uh, the funding, this is just me speaking, the, the funding um, models really have you looking at audience quite a bit. It gets me looking at audience. I spoke um, to these folks in the green room about that. You spoke about it in opera. Sometimes these forms you know, you don't know who's going to buy your quilts. Sometimes you don't know who's going to be eating your food. But I endeavor to make what I do for my ancestors and for children. Briefly, I mean, both, absolutely. With the keen um, awareness that there is a predominant group that will be in the room, but, like you said, children, I do also make my work for my own children and um, the children to say, this is a place to have a voice. So looking to see the next generation of Indigenous artists, but also non-Indigenous artists, absolutely. Um, I, I sing um, these works to educate um, anybody who will listen. Um, I'm just happy to share these stories with people who are willing to learn. Um, and when other people feel the same way, I get to learn, and it's, it's very special to me. Um, I just always remember when I'm doing performances like this that I unfortunately didn't get to grow up knowing people like me until much later in my life. So I'm very thankful for people who speak Indigenous stories and share them with everybody who will listen and try and teach. Um, for me, I mean, I'm, I'm always conscious of how uh, an audience might perceive my work, um, but and I, I'm 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 mixed. Uh, my my father's side is is Manx and, and settler, um, and uh, but I, I I wasn't raised. Uh, in that environment, so um, for me, a lot of it is is creating work for the communities that have welcomed me, um, and and for my young cousins and and the young people in those communities, and and really trying to uh, uh, focus on resurgence and survivance and and. 
Um, I, I do want it to be able to be appreciated by non-Indigenous audiences, but that's not my primary audience. Um, I think, I don't think that my responsibility is to, when I, when I make work, it's, I'm alone. And, and then oftentimes I only am aware that there's going to be an audience if it's up on the wall or if the film is screening and then I'm really scared. (laughs) Um... So, I think that that's, that's the answer there. Um, I just like, yeah, I, I, that's a simple way of saying what I have to say. Yeah. Uh, when I cook or catering, I, I'm thinking about it's for everyone. Yeah. But, but, but really what I'm cooking for though, I mean the whole reason why I'm in the business and why I'm doing this, it's for the elders and the children in uh, my community. That's as simple as that. Um, whenever I've, I've done work, I've been involved in a lot of projects in the community here in Peterborough, um, as well as, well as um, in Curve Lake. Um, I'm really conscious as a curator um, um, not to set up borders. I don't really like that. So my work, um, I try to um, have it be accessible to everyone. Um, That being said, I also like, like I I really enjoy like exploring um, our indigenous knowledge. Um, It's, you know, art allows me to do that. Um, and I like to celebrate that part. But while doing that, I also like to share it. You know, so um, the projects that I'm working on, I like to share the knowledge. And, and a lot of the insights, they're, they're like a lot of the, um, in the old language, a lot of the concepts are really, really interesting. And um, they are relevant for, there's a lot of, perspectives in those ideas on understanding the world today. So I tried to um, share that. And so for me, it's about sharing and, and um, being inclusive. Um, I do quilt presentations. And a lot of the time, when it's formal like that, it's uh, a white audience. But um, my idea at first was uh, to show Anishinaabe people to, to, uh, uh, that art just isn't painting, that um, we can use fabric. We all seem to love our fabric. (laughs) And, um, but, What I try to do, oh, and what I have done, is um, talk about the differences in the culture, in, in, say, a culture of the invaders 
and the culture of Anishinaabeg. And I, um, for example, one of the things I talk about, because I use the word Anishinaabe in my presentations, I will, um, I will uh, talk about, say, how in English, the three, um, the three, the three um, um, divisions in English is masculine, feminine, and neuter. Whereas in ours, there's only two, and it is animate and inanimate. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, you know, an, a, a language just isn't using words and translating words, but, but it's really a, a soul, a spirit thing. When I, when I say that um, there are two um, divisions in our language, or two groups, I shouldn't say that, divisions, two groups, and that's animate and inanimate, um, it means something to us that there's two. And in your culture, for example, um, it's a patriarchal culture. And you um, you tend to, if you don't know the 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 gender of something, you tend to call it he. Like when I look across the lake, and sometimes uh, you'll see a loon or a or a, a, a blue heron, and people always talk about, <coughs> oh look at him, look at he's fishing, uh, uh, what's he doing, and. They go on, on and on, and I try. And sometimes I slip into that too, but that's what I grew up with in, in, in English. And so, so I try to be very conscious of that. And, and we say policeman, chairman, and I'm, I'm sure there's a zillion other um, examples that this is a patriarchal culture. So what I try to do in my presentations is, is kind of like teach people that um, those kinds of things, because white people aren't very aware of their culture. They know that uh, uh, Indians have this culture and the Polynesians in their culture, they do this, but white people don't seem to know what they do. And there is, that's, Another thing is, uh, when I say that, I mean, I think of the word culture. You know, you go through university or whatever, um, high school, and, uh, you know, they say, oh, um, the, in the Indian culture, they do this, and in the Arab culture, they do this. But never did they say, in our culture, we do this, which, which means a white man's culture. So that people aren't aren't aware. I, I think they where where do they think they're living? How do they think they're living? We have to think about it all the time because um, you know it's it's just it's just stuff we don't do. Um, another another one is um, uh, possessive, the pro possessive, is that a tense? What is it, a possessive pr pronoun? He, her, her dog, his, 
cat and those kind of things, they're possessive. So therefore, when we go to uh, teacher's college to learn how to teach the Anishinaabe language, we are taught that that's possessive. But for us, that's not that's not how we see it. We we see what's called in English possession, possessive or possession. We see that as a relationship. When we say this is my land, we don't mean it in a possessive way. We mean it in a in a relational way. My sister, that human being is my sister. That's a relationship. That's not a possessive or a possession, like as in my wife. <laughs> okay, so thank you very much. Okay, and uh, I think we're, we're finished, so thank you very much for, to the panel, okay, as well. For... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.